0: Welcome to the 91st episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the rapidly changing consumer economy. This episode is brought to you by Loose Threads membership, which gives you actionable analysis, insights and events that drive growth and Loose Threads Espresso, your energizing and high pressure filter for consumer news and context. We also have a newsletter that features the latest open letters to CEOs, podcasts with industry leaders and news from Loose Threads. Check it all out at loosethreads.com. Joining me today is Sam Alston, the co-founder of Big Lives, a company that brings together emerging designers and showcases them in unique retail experiences. Sam started the company after a career in luxury retail with a specific focus on customer relations.
1: So at first it was really like I'm creating a store in my home that exists for two hours, but that has slowly evolved into this idea of like a fleeting or ephemeral retail moment that is more like a gallery experience than a shop.
0: Recognizing the power of offline, she wanted to create high-touch spaces that showcase the stories behind brands and their products, but with an intentional sense of impermanence. Here's my talk with Sam Alston. So why don't we start, I guess, just talk a bit about your background, then we can work our way up to big lives existing.
1: So I grew up in suburban Seattle, in the eighties as a mixed race kid and was sort of the daughter of two different versions of the American dream. So my dad is African-American who grew up in inner city Chicago. My mom is mixed European descent, grew up in rural Idaho. And they both grew up with very little financial resources but a family value of education and work ethic. So you know, for my sister and I, education was always the first priority. And that meant we went to private school in Seattle which at the time was a very homogeneous environment. And I often found myself the only minority in a room and felt that I was seen as sort of a representative, someone to talk about blackness when I didn't feel entitled or necessarily responsible to. And then at other times felt like I was perceived as culturally white because that's how I grew up. And that also didn't reflect how I self-identified. So for me, fashion became this creative outlet where I could express uniquely how I wanted to be perceived. And it gave me a sense of sort of agency and voice in a way that I wasn't able to find otherwise. So for me, fashion started as this sort of tool for self empowerment. And not only was I creative in that sense, but also I was an actual like, kind of art kid. So I was doing a lot of drawing and painting growing up. And that eventually led me into an art major in college. So I went to the East Coast. I went to Harvard undergrad as an art major, which was sort of a very odd decision yeah. in retrospect. I assume
0: they have a good program, though.
1: <laughs> they have an excellent program, yeah. but it didn't stop my father from calling me every week and saying, when are you switching to investment banking? And I was like, that's not a major, but anyway. So I found sort of through doing a lot of studio work that I didn't actually feel like I was an artist per se, but I loved writing about art. I loved thinking about it. I loved supporting my artistic colleagues in, sort of finding their own way, and eventually graduated sort of directionless. So I moved back to Seattle and accidentally started working in a maternity store, which was owned by my best friend's mom at the time, and that was where I really fell in love with retail. So I had this love of fashion from an identity perspective and then a love of retail from a really random job that I started out of college and I was helping and assisting these women in a time in their lives that was so pivotal and so emotional and they were really looking for comfort and sort of meaning in what they were wearing at that time and that's an idea that idea that like shopping can bring joy and can bring deeper meaning that stuck with me still to this day with big lives. So I was in the store and decided I wanted to start my own, like I'm doing it for someone else, I want to start my own store one day, so how can I get business experience really quickly? My shortcut was to get an MBA, so I moved to New York, went to NYU, and that decision sort of propelled me into a corporate fashion track, and I left that dream of owning a boutique in the wings. I interned with Urban Outfitters as an MBA, and they hired me as a buyer out of school So I was buying women's denim at sort of the height of the color denim trend. The business was on fire. It was an amazingly entrepreneurial company. As buyers, we were working with the design team to create product, but also going out in the market and identifying trends and developing them ourselves. Had tons of freedom and also tons of accountability. So for me, Urban was my foundation as a merchant. And from there, wanted to move back to New York and found Louis Vuitton, where I moved as a merchant as well. So I was buying women's accessories in a very different capacity, much more financial. We were sort of told what we had to assort, but had to quantify it for North and South American stores and also train the store teams on how to sell those products and connect with clients. So after that, I moved into client development, where I was supporting about 40 stores in the Northeast in developing their customers, like literally their customers walking in the store through using a digital clienteling app, through in-store events and experiences, and made a very sort of departmental shift at that point in my career from buying into client-facing activities. The job that I left Louis Vuitton for at the end of 2017 was, I was Client Development Director in the flagship on 57th Street here, so really responsible for supporting the sales team, again, in developing their clients, but on the retail level, like day in and day out, on the sales floor also dealing with the high-end clients, so hosting VIPs for exceptional experiences around the world, fashion shows, high jewelry events, and then also managing client issues, so really trying to recover and retain clients who were very upset and disappointed with the brand and with our level of service, which was pivotal in my career. It gave me the confidence to go back to that dream of opening my own boutique because I felt like I understood client relationship. I understood store operations. And I could kind of bring together all of my experience from merchandising to client into this concept of what a store should look like today.
0: And so I guess you had this idea stretching all the way back to after college. But in its modern form, what was like the first inkling of Mm. what it started to be?
1: So it was two things that really inspired the specific idea. One was being in the luxury market in one building within four walls that was a very consistent business driven completely by in-person relationship while the thread in the market was retail is dead and stores are going to be extinct I couldn't reconcile that so for me I became really sort of obsessed with that thread and you know where is it coming from what is it actually like what truth is in that and why my friends and network are very much like in that world as well and we were always talking about how shopping is so boring and sort of being really nostalgic about when we were kids and we used to go to the mall and it was such a fun social activity. And have you ever been somewhere recently that really inspired you? So taking those two themes and thinking about, okay, so what are the aspects of brick and mortar retail that contribute to customer relationship and do inspire people? And what are the parts that are just a drag that are sort of archaic or can fall away? So with that, Idea and those two sort of problems, I enrolled in an accelerator called Tacklebox that's designed for early stage founders who have full time jobs, who are trying to validate a business idea before leaving their job, and went through the meticulous process of testing. Thinking about first does a store need to have four walls? Does it need to be open all the time? Does it need to have brands that we know and love? What if it has all emerging brands that people are discovering? What if it's in a private space that you only have access to? not only for a fleeting moment, but because you're invited. And so that accelerator brought this concept to fruition in the form of a test. I executed the first event in my home in November of 2017. I live in a bed brownstone that was built in 1899, did a lot of research on the home. There's this whole story around... Women it's been owned by women since the early 1900s and curated a set of emerging designers that were also all women and so it sort of like brought that theme to life through a 2-hour event invited everyone i thought might care about it <laughs> and had such a phenomenal response qualitatively and then also in terms of sales it was well beyond my expectations so felt like okay there's something here and have really been testing and building it ever since
0: so you mentioned kind of a list of the things that got you excited about shopping and your friends and the things that did not Mm. talk more about what was on each side of that equation
1: so what's super interesting that i discovered through the accelerator which is philosophically very focused on customer so the founder's idea is you know Your customers will essentially tell you everything. If you find the problem, they'll help you define the solution. So very rigorous customer interviews. And I focused really on women who worked in fashion because I thought that word of mouth would pass quickly. I would ask them, like, do you like to shop in stores? And they would say, I hate shopping in stores. I only shop online. But then when I asked them the question, what was the last thing that you bought that you really love? Tell me about how you found it it always happened in a store. And there were always very specific elements around that. So this idea of there's usually a social aspect. They were usually with someone that they trusted who was a friend. They were usually in a somewhat calm environment. A lot of times an unexpected store, like an impermanent store. And so thinking about all of those elements, there was always like a storytelling aspect, whether it was an associate who explained to them part of the narrative, or they could actually relate to me. Well, I bought these shoes that I absolutely love and like they were actually inspired by a vintage print that X-Brand did 30 years ago like there was always a story that they could transmit as well yeah. so it was through those interviews yeah. that it really built like i literally had like a wall of post-its with like what are the reoccurring themes and what can you build from that that no one's necessarily doing yeah
0: so for the first one i guess like talk through the process of putting that together mm-hmm. and what did you think it would be like and then like what was it actually like to pull yeah. it off
1: So the process of putting it together was a very long process, primarily because in order to acquire stock in traditional retail, it happens on such a long lead time. So while I was still in my job and I had sort of committed to the idea that I was going to do this and I was going to leave and at least try, I had to start sourcing designers. And the other challenge was that I had absolutely no leverage because I had no brand yet and I had no space to speak of. So I was going to like trade shows and yeah. online and reaching out to people blindly, being like, "This is my idea. Do you want to be a part of it?" And I would say, like, I probably sent a hundred emails to brands and like nobody responded to me. And then started going in person and. A lot of people said, you know, we don't work with people as new as you, which was actually a blessing in disguise because I had been more focused on brands that were more well known that I knew would bring customers. And all of a sudden I found myself meeting designers for whom I was solving an actual issue, which is I have a direct to consumer business. I don't necessarily have a retail solution that I'm happy with. So I'm open to trying new things who then allowed me to buy A super small capsule of inventory, and this collection came together across categories of women's ready-to-wear and accessories. So that was the bulk of the work. Of the pre-work was really the curation. Then it came to you know trying to describe to people what I was doing, and that at the beginning was incredibly difficult. So certainly that first event, it was a lot of friends and support, friends and Mm -hmm. family and supporters.
0: How did you describe it before it existed?
1: I wonder if I can remember. I I described it as a store in a home, which has its own danger because it feels very like, could go very wrong, you know, could be very crafty. And the way that we merchandised it was more of like a gallery experience. So that's something that honestly still is a challenge with Big Lives in terms of messaging. When you're trying to like work on a new concept, there's a natural way that people associate it with things that they understand exist. So for Big Lives... It's been everything from like a trade show to a flea market to a trunk show to a Tupperware party. And like all of those things do nothing but erode the brand. Yeah. Yeah, so at first it was really like I'm creating a store in my home that exists for two hours. Like it's only here for that long. Come check it out. We have amazing designers that I want to show to you. But that has slowly evolved into this idea of like a fleeting or ephemeral retail moment That is more like a gallery experience than a shop.
0: Did you ever mention like the apartment by the line or like the Rhodes townhouse or something? Or were those two arcane of references?
1: Those are great references and definitely inspiration for me. I think the merchandising itself is quite different because the apartment by the line is you feel like you're discovering things in someone's closet. And that was actually something that we experimented with two events ago where we partnered with a real estate company to showcase a home that was on the market Mm. at the same time as showcasing our designers. So it just made sense to outfit it like a home. And that was one sort of interpretation of big lives. But I think the more successful one that really elevates the designers is one where it feels like the pieces are front and center. They're not stowed away.
0: Okay, so there was a lot of work from a lead time perspective on the actual inventory side. Mm. It sounds like there's a lot of friends and family, like the audience showed up.
1: Exactly. But I specifically, of course, asked people to bring folks that they thought would appreciate that experience. And that has the attendance and the customer acquisition has still been so much driven by word of mouth, a little bit of press, but mostly just by people coming and being enthusiastic about what they're seeing and wanting to share that experience with others. So that's exactly what happened. And we ended up with, you know, about 80 people came to the first one and trekked to Bedstai and because I had people who were so committed to showing up, I felt a responsibility also to create an evening and an experience and something that was beyond just looking at pieces. So partnered with a local wine shop to bring beverage and did the same for food and had a DJ. And so it became this like true sort of event and launch. And those aspects of experience have, you know, at that point they were very much organic. It was like wanting to sort of support local and make sure that, you know, bed was sort of represented in the experience. But now it's become a lot tighter. So thinking about, like, who are the right partners in order to bring to life whatever the theme is.
0: What was, like, the thing that went the most right and then the most wrong from the first one?
1: So I think the thing that went the most right was executing the vision, people really said, I sort of get it. Like, I understand what you're trying to do. And they really connected with designers. And many of the designers came and also said, you know, I've never seen my pieces in this context, and it brings so much value to my brand. And ultimately, like, those were the two things that we needed in terms of feedback to validate the idea. What meant the most wrong? I mean, again, to go back to the experience elements, I think the danger of event selling or experience selling is – the designers can be overtaken by the context. so And it can turn into like a party instead of something that's really focused on transmitting story and brand discovery. So that was probably part of the challenge of the first one was, you know, we had a great turnout. There was this like vibe of like it's at night and there's a DJ and I've pulled back on some of those elements in the more recent events just because the emphasis really needs to be on these emerging designers and their talent and making sure that they're really connecting to new customers.
0: I guess it's interesting to hear the arc from trying to go work with more established brands to more just less found and less Mm -hmm. known brands. I think you see with all the department stores today where they're really trying to figure out like when we all sell third-party merchandise that is available everywhere, like what's the point of that anymore? And you see them like shifting towards private label. And so you found it organically, but it was almost the only logical place to go because if you just sold acne and all these other things, Like, what would the point of that be?
1: Exactly. That's so true and to build on that point there, I started Big Lives as a store model because I had to, right? Because of that, like, I don't have a leg to stand on yet. I needed to create a collection that I believed in and recruit designers that I believed in, but I didn't have anything to sort of demonstrate in terms of what it would bring to them through customer acquisition, through contextualization of their designs. Now, the model is evolving. I'm like literally in the middle of a pivot of going from a store model where I buy and sell inventory to a marketplace, for lack of a better word, where I'm bringing customers who are interested in discovering emerging design in an experiential context with designers who need their pieces to be seen in a different way and need to meet customers in person and need an alternative to traditional brick and mortar that's not so cost-intensive. So... The goal is, again, to really challenge that sort of department store model of multi-brand selling and instead say, Big Lives creates an environment for you in a way that brings both parties a lot of value, but we don't touch inventory, and it's very low risk for all parties involved. It's more of like a marketing vehicle than a sales channel.
0: So after the first one finishes, what's like the plan, or like where do you go from there?
1: So the first one, the advantage, obviously, on the back end is that I had a free space, right? It was my home. And what's been interesting is every Big Lives event has led to a lead for the next space. And we've operated with about 75% of our spaces have been free. Mm. So what happened from that first event was a friend who came was like, I want to host one in my home. I'm just finishing renovating my basement. It's going to be like the perfect kind of clean context. And by basement, I mean like beautiful Seattle space overlooking the water, but she was in Seattle. So she said, can you bring the collection Uh to Seattle? I think like we have a great network who would love it. They don't have access to these type of designers on the West Coast as much as New York. So literally like picked up the store and physically moved the entire thing across the country about a month later and had again, like a really fantastic response with a very different customer base. And a different setting. Same designers, same collection, literally, again, moving inventory and setting up that experience somewhere else. So after that went really well, the same thing happened. It was like someone in Palm Springs wanted to do mm. it. So it, it really started off with that type of momentum of like, I want this in my space. Like This is really fun. It's bringing a sense of enjoyment back to shopping, it's a social activity, I get to be a host, I get to showcase my space for whatever reason, whether I'm selling it, or I am I just want people to see it. And so that was what gathered momentum at the beginning. The challenge of that was logistically, I mean, moving a store around the country, yeah. it doesn't make any sense, because there were too many variables. Yeah. So everything was sort of muddied. And it was really hard to make strategic decisions from there. So in January, I came back to New York and said, For 2018, it's New York City. We're going to build network this way. Referrals will be much more sustainable. And e-com was sort of the solution to reaching and supporting those customers that we'd acquired on the West Coast.
0: You started focusing on like the fashion kind of insider customer. Did you see that start to evolve as you did these more? And I guess especially as you Mm -hmm. left New York?
1: Definitely. The West Coast customer generally, much less in that world. But still, I think a creative slant. So those communities are so close. So like even in New York, it's evolved from exclusively sort of the fashion retail, like executive up and coming professionals into more people in film, even people in like design and tech. And it's sort of starting to spill over into a lot of marketing folks and spill into other areas. I think the difference... In customer, more on the West Coast was age. Like, I'm seeing a slightly more mature customer on the West Coast who still wants to be like super unique in her style and is really looking for designers, not necessarily needs brand recognition, but wants interesting stories behind what she's purchasing.
0: It sounds like you, I mean, well, you did say, okay, we have to kind of lock down in New York, but Mm -hmm. did you think? As you were doing that that just the saturation here would make it more successful elsewhere or how did you weigh yes. those things and then decide to actually kind of hunker down here
1: Pretty practical decision there. I live here and I wasn't willing to <laughs> yeah. move quite yet. I think about it all the time. I think that the model could potentially be much more successful in second tier markets or cities that just don't have access yeah, like to Chicago a lot of interesting or exactly. Or, yeah. DC I've had people reach out and ask for Dallas like yeah. San Francisco for sure, even though a huge city, but still like a different they don't kind have of fashion. Good style, so they need it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to stay disciplined in like that idea of if you can, if you can make it work in New York, and you can really like define the business model and make it profitable as a one location operation, then to scale would be much easier and might actually lead to much faster growth.
0: How many had you done? I guess until the beginning of this year, three. three? Yep. So what were I guess the expectations? from a sales perspective Mm. that maybe you had and the designers had, and then how did that kind of compare with the actual results you were seeing?
1: The expectation was very random, to be honest. Like, it's very difficult to predict revenue on something like that. I knew how much inventory I had, and so I had an expectation on, like, a sell-through. You know, it's like, I have this many RSVPs, this percentage of them will show up, this percentage of them will convert at an average price point of this. Like, we did that, but again, it was very theoretical and ultimately had some customers who spent a lot more than expected and I think really are starting to see big lives as like almost like a styling or a personal shopping service where they can sort of come and see new things on a regular basis and will find ways to update their wardrobe through big lives so like very very loyal and high value customers and then some who would come and we always have A table of sort of giftables or lifestyle items and they wanted to like walk away with something to sort of commemorate the experience but it might be a book or a notebook or something at a much lower price. So I think my expectation was like a very basic like back of the napkin math and ultimately the distribution of like customer spend across those transactions that did happen in person were much more diverse than I expected. The designer expectation is interesting because That's something that I'm trying to now manage, and my experience and issue is that when you put a lot of pressure on transaction in person, it erodes experience, especially if you have a bunch of people who are having a great time and looking at things in a very sort of open way for two hours, and all of a sudden you say, like we need to close X amount, like do it, and you tell your sales staff that that needs to happen, everything shifts, and unfortunately, the risk is that it actually does damage to the brands. So I'm very, very careful about that aspect of experience. And you know, if this year has been all about honing that execution and building compelling retail experience, for me, next year is really about understanding how to drive that link between discovery in person with a little bit of customer acquisition and sales into either driving those customers back to other outlets or back online for those designers because this service needs to be irresistible for both designers and customers on some level.
0: Is it your staff?
1: So I work with a lot of contractors and have built a little bit of community around that. So the... People who work at my events have worked at multiple, and that's starting to support a more consistent experience. But yeah, I'm the one sourcing the partners, which I think is important because it keeps the theme cohesive. And then also having the sales staff. One of the biggest correlations between sales on site is having the designer on site. So that's the part that's really powerful is when customers meet a designer in person and they're not in like a selling position, yeah. it's very special. Like it's amazing to meet someone who designed the the jumpsuit that you're wearing like that's and can actually tell you the story herself. So that's been a huge support, although it's not technically like a sales yep. staff.
0: So you're into 2018, you're back in New York. Yep. How many events do you plan to do for the year? And then like talk through, I guess, the priorities of how it goes up until I guess
1: the present. So the plan was to do one a month. That was my goal. We're more on the once every two month track. So that's been sort of the natural cadence. There are a few reasons for that. One is the size of the business right now and how much energy and resources it takes to execute. It also has to do with how often newness is available. And I think that that's a really important component because we don't want the assortment to start to feel stale when we do have some returning customers. Yeah, the way that that started was hosted early in the year, sort of took January to reflect and then in February did another one in my home to sort of see how the thing was progressing in the same form but with a different set of product and then went on to really look at spaces as a key to unlocking the business. So once that momentum ran out around people wanting to like give their homes and it would take so long to convince someone to like open up their house to a bunch of strangers started looking to real estate to provide an inventory of spaces and potentially an inventory of spaces that would be free because they need to be marketed. Mm. So that was an idea that came from a relationship that formed at that first February event in 2018, where someone attended who said I'm obsessed with this house. How did you find it? And it was like, Oh, let me introduce you to my realtor who is amazing. And that created a new relationship for him. So, all of a the sudden, there was an indicator that, like, when people come and they see a home in the context of entertaining in the home, having products in the home, like they can really envision living there and they might actually want it. So, started to go hard on pitching real estate companies, developers, individual brokers on. You know, we can showcase your space in a very different, and new way than like a traditional open house. Because in a sense, real estate is as sort of dusty as retail.
0: That's so interesting. You never expected that to be.
1: Never planned the avenue. It. No.
0: But it's been more successful than the referrals and the begging and so forth. Yeah.
1: It's easier to. It's yeah. less stressful. And it feels like your interests are aligned with like your space partner. So we did one in July that was in. Really an exceptional brownstone in, again, in Bed-Stuy, but on the sort of west side, a one-family home that was owned by the city and then became sort of a juvenile transitional space. And it was a funeral parlor at some point. Like, it had all of this richness and was redone by a company called Dixon that preserves original detail but also brings in a lot of modern elements. So we were able to really showcase this, like, amazing stained glass and millwork next to a one lane swimming pool in the basement and then have Mm. all of this beautiful product throughout that really made it feel like it was livable.
0: Okay, so you shifted from the space side more towards the real estate world. What else I guess was evolving up in the first kind of three quarters of the year?
1: The other thing that's evolved a lot has been the sort of tightness around concept. So the best example of that is this last one that we did in a artist loft in Union Square that was formerly owned by William de Kooning and his wife, Elaine de Kooning. It's this incredible space, like, paintings on the ceilings and on the walls. It's just really remarkable, and in a place that you wouldn't expect. Everyone walks in, and they're sort of like, this is here. How is this here? And for me, I started reading about the space and got sort of obsessed with Elaine de Kooning, who's much less famous than her husband, but was a writer for Art News. She was, like, a very strong painter in her own right, and she has this quote that says, painting isn't a noun it's a verb it's an event first and an image after so this whole idea of process comes before outcome which is a really interesting thread to tell designer story because it gives you an opportunity to say Nicole Saldana who has this amazing collection of shoes is inspired by all of her friends and each one of them is embodied in the style that she names after them and to be able to sort of tell the inspiration of like so she starts with a person in mind who she knows intimately and starts to build out a product based on that. And that's something that people can really connect to and that they love to retell. So we took this space and used it as sort of the framing for that concept, and then merchandised it more like a gallery on the day after Fashion Week ended, which is a big art gallery opening night. So really trying to echo that theme of like art, design equals art, and like process comes before outcome in one particular event, which I think is much more powerful than just saying, this is a curated collection because Big Lives believes in it.
0: Were there any other like surprises or things that, besides a real estate piece that, I guess, changed coming into kind of year two of working on these or how, I guess, else the concept generally evolved?
1: There was one moment that was sort of critical around testing a longer event or a longer pop-up. So one that we did was an evening plus a couple of days open. And it was amazing how little those extra days hmm. generated because constantly get the question like, how do you possibly operate in two hours? How does that drive enough yeah, interest? Yeah, twice every two
0: months, two hours, yeah. Yeah,
1: it just can't sustain. And so thinking, well, oh, if you just have it open longer, then that will like, drive people to maybe come or come back. or And not to walk away from that completely, but it was so evident in that one test that people, when they have a reason and a really fleeting window to show up for something, they will but when you give them like 3 days of drop in time a lot of other priorities will come into play and there's an actual benefit to having a social aspect of shopping so i can't tell you how many like emails i get afterwards that say you'll never believe this but at your event last night i reconnected with this person from my past or like i met someone mm-hmm. who i'm now going to work with there is this really interesting community networking thing that's coming together for both designers and for customers at these moments and that depends on them being compressed
0: you talked about it a bit before but how do you think about like size and scale mm-hmm. and what you want it to be and how big you want it to be and so forth
1: it's still in process i think about scale most easily as multiple locations and being able to like once a system is built for executing experiential retail and a network of designers is big enough to have really clean themes that match market, that match experiential element, that make sense financially as a model, then it's pretty easy to like replicate and really fun, too. So that's one version. I mean, another would be to do more targeted events within the same market. So one of the problems that we're coming up on is to have a 2,000-square-foot space and two hours, you really can't have more than like 150 people come through comfortably. So you're putting a big diversity of types of customers in a space at the same time when maybe some of those customers would rather shop in a much more quiet environment or privately. Some people purely want the social aspect and sort of the meeting. Some of the attendees might be buyers who are looking to make relationships with designers and it's too busy for mm-hmm. that to happen. So starting to think about how to segment a series of events within the same concept or space that would allow some scale in terms of sales for sure, but more like value creation.
0: Right. So maybe there's like a quiet hour or something before. Yeah.
1: And one thing that I'm thinking a lot about is trade shows as well. So like if the whole mission of Big Lives is to cultivate emerging designers in new markets, that doesn't only have to happen through end customers. That can also happen through introductions to other ways of distributing and selling trade shows are, for the most part, can feel sort of stale. You're like walking around booth mm-hmm. to booth. There's a sales dynamic that already exists, which is sort of uncomfortable and awkward. Could you use this type of experiential platform to make bigger business introductions? And like, would that be another segment or a different day? You see what I'm saying? It could build yep. out in scope or it could build out in location.
0: In terms of, I guess, like your personal interest for how big a guess, where mm-hmm. do you think that falls on the spectrum? Because there there are a lot of other models out there that are like much more templated turnkey that aim to be in a lot of other places. And there are others that are a lot more bespoke and personal that kind of want to stay small. And how do you think about all of that?
1: I would love to create a business that I'm super passionate about and that sustains the way that I want to live and lets me do something that I love. And that's something that I've been so fortunate to experience in the first year of my business in terms of that like feeling like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. In the world, and like the relationships that that leads to, the creativity that that leads to, the collaborations. Like, I feel super grateful to be inspired every day, and that's something that I want to hold on to. It's not the grand ambition of like selling out or making a huge retail brand. I'm more inspired by this curiosity around like how my customers want to consume and how they find meaning in choosing how they style themselves, and I want to be able to like be a part of that. So, I guess, in a way, that does limit the scope.
0: But in a like perfectly fine way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who is the customer?
1: For so the you? customer is I think psychographically she's less brand conscious, right? Like label conscious and more interested in discovering innovative design. She's more narrative driven than trend driven for sure, which is part of our curatorial strategy. Age-wise, she's generally like between 30 and 55, I would say. It's sort of a big span, but customers who are coming up in their career will very soon be leaders in their organizations across fashion for sure but also across finance and marketing and the arts and whatnot and then also sort of at the other end of that curve where she's like coming out of a life of being a professional and wants more interesting things that she's wearing in her daily life but I think ultimately one thing that I learned in luxury and that I see in my customers is she does crave some level of like personal interaction and high touch experience which I'm able to still facilitate at this size of business because we're talking about a few hundred customers not thousands or tens of thousands so I'm still going to my customers homes and bringing them collections and styling them I'm able to like have lunch or dinner with them like I'm really trying to cultivate high touch relationships in a way that I learned in the luxury world and that I think is missing at the contemporary level and that's something that my customer appreciates more than the convenience of, like, getting a subscription package right. of emerging designers and, like, sending what she doesn't like back. Right.
0: So the customer, though, is the shopper, not the brand.
1: Yes. Sorry. So absolutely. So that's the customer yeah. on that side. On the brand side, it is. So we talked a little bit about the size is, like, generally a brand who has a direct-to-consumer business, probably has wholesale accounts that she can, like, count on her hand, he or she, and is really like finding that online is not enough. Customer acquisition is getting more and more expensive. There's a barrier to learning about your customer and to getting enough feedback when none of it is in real life. But also looking for people who are established enough that they have a little bit of like marketing budget to play with and want to invest in something new and innovative, which, you know, this does require. So that's the type of customer on the design side who has that issue of like, I need a retail solution, I have these channels, but I'm not super happy with the fact that like when I, in my wholesale account, sometimes they mark everything down. I don't have control over my brand adjacencies. I don't necessarily get to meet like a lot of my customers at once, which big lives provides by having such a short lived experience.
0: And then how does the e-com piece play into it when you obviously have something that the physical space is the priority? But yeah, how do you envision them, I guess, connecting over time as well?
1: So that's been a huge learning. Strategically, we launched e-comm to solve the problem of access, right? So we launched e-comm in April of this year, and that really came after, like, okay, we're deciding to hunker down on New York, but there's a great potential on in other markets, including the West Coast. How do we allow for customers to access Big Lives Collection remotely? And so e-comm was the solution. Ultimately, and now... I don't know that it's the right embodiment of the brand. I think it sort of goes against the idea of what we're doing which is focusing on that in-person connection and contextualization and it's just Big Lives doesn't have a better shot at doing that than the brand themselves. So why not use our energy and audience and direct them back to the brands and allow them to truly acquire and build long-term relationships instead of trying to Get a piece of that yeah so honestly or you
0: could get a piece of it for doing that exactly
1: yeah. in a different way and yeah. not managing something yeah. like that and trying to be an expert at that one really the expertise is in the offline experience so if i had to predict i would say the website will completely evolve in the next like three months yeah
0: because it would seem that even if someone you were saying before doesn't buy something at the event the chances that they're going to go look at the brand after is like pretty high Right, and exactly. They're from going an to go attribution check it perspective. out. Exactly, and yeah. so
1: why not just like nudge that a little bit more instead of saying, "Come to Big Lives and buy our collection," which is small. I mean, to produce a website that houses a hundred designers through like dropship, it's another business. So, yeah. and the fact that it doesn't necessarily make sense for the brand.
0: What has been the cheapest and most expensive lesson you've learned building the company?
1: The most expensive lesson was inventory. I'm not exactly sure how that could have gone any other way. I learned the lesson through trying, and it would have taken me a lot longer to get off the ground and find people who were willing to buy in without any understanding of who I was. But inventory is, that's the most expensive. expensive. Yes. <laughs> that's the most expensive. And the cheapest learning was probably the real estate piece around like just how organically relationships can form and the fact that that in and of itself is a demonstration of value. There's so much more opportunity to push on that lever, not only in terms of space, but in terms of every partner in the experience. So I think what the events are doing for a beverage vendor, for culinary, for a florist, like for all of those elements, you can create a lot of new relationships. And that's just something that organically comes up when people are like trying to collaborate with you. So I think that was something learned without a lot of loss involved.
0: You mentioned a bit before that you had kind of started to shift the model from buying the inventory to what you said is more of a marketplace. I guess what informed that and maybe talk a bit more about how that's been going?
1: So what informed that was first like the business necessity when operating with inventory at the cadence that big lives events are held with the limited amount of time. It just doesn't really make sense. Like you don't have enough time to sell through a season's worth of inventory the industry operates at a certain clip in terms of discounting, and I'm a like firm believer against discounting. And so part of what I've been able to do is to say, like, we don't put things on sale because these are events and everything here is sort of elevated. But when you own inventory, it becomes really, really difficult to stick to that just from a financial perspective. So that was one. There was also a lot of interest from brands who you know, got sent to us or saw us on social or whatever who were saying, like, how do you work? I want to participate. And finding that they were open to other ways of working than me purchasing inventory. So the opportunity was very, like, much required by the business just because of my resources, and I am bootstrapping and self-funded at this point. So that those were my limitations that sort of forced the model. It has been difficult to convince people to come on, and I think it's more because... There are two things. First, it's new. Second, there's not a lot of comparables. So you might say, okay, it costs X amount to participate in one of our events. It lasts two hours, and it's like, but I participated in a pop-up last week that lasted for a week that was half of that. And so to really communicate the value proposition takes some time. For me, it's really about like facilitating customer acquisition. There's a brand building piece, and then there's an elevation of your brand through context that our experiences are providing. It's also super low cost because ultimately, like you're not producing extra inventory, you're taking something either from somewhere else or that you've already produced and it's out of your hands for 72 hours. You're getting to meet customers in real life and getting real time feedback. And then there's this huge opportunity on the back end to acquire and drive additional traffic. So that value proposition has taken some time to develop in a lot of conversations with designers, many of whom are probably a little bit too small to fully be able to leverage that value. So finding maybe more of the mid-tiers who are still undiscovered, but who have maybe a presence in a different international market or enough resources to say, like, I get it. I need more interesting ways of being seen and of reaching customers.
0: At a high level, what are the economics, I guess, of like, how do you make money?
1: So the margin between the event production and the flat fee combined of designers participating and then like a small cut of sales that's marginal, but at least we're both aligned in the incentive to sell. So that's where that like um, trade show business model concept comes in, because it's something that people understand. It's like I pay to have a place.
0: Did you ever think of charging for shoppers to show up?
1: No, I think it takes away from the experience and that just comes from, especially from luxury retail experience and creating so many experiences for people that they were never asked to like pay for just as a method of customer appreciation because I think it deepens relationships. So the act of saying, I'd love to invite you to this thing is so powerful. And I think to ask you to pay to come is a very different dynamic. Yep.
0: Looking back, I guess, is there anything you would do differently if you had that opportunity?
1: It's hard to say I think I would have done differently because there was so much learning that came out of the mistakes. I would have definitely started at the beginning with associating a certain value with the service on the designer side, because ultimately what I found was, is providing this service without charging for it, which makes it seem less valuable. It's very hard to like provide something for free and then to go back later and ask someone to shell out even if ecom does evolve i think it was really important for me as someone whose experience has been much more on the offline side to understand the challenges of ecom and really hone in on what it's for like you don't just have an ecom site because everyone has one like it has to have a reason to be that's contributing to the perception of the brand that's not necessarily just living
0: and then i guess as you look forward to the next six months to a year kind of what is on the horizon and what are you most excited about?
1: So I'm most excited about a few proposals that I'm building since the last one. One is around bigger events that are focused on a specific like group of designers. So for instance, my most recent sourcing trip was to Lagos, Nigeria and had this like amazingly Mm -hmm. serendipitous discovery of a community of designers that are exceptional. And so came back and made all these connections there and have started speaking with them. I featured one of them at my last event who could sort of produce very quickly, but I think that there's an opportunity to bring light to that in New York and in the States at the same time as, like, Lagos is getting on the map as, like, the fashion capital of Africa. You know, there's a discussion of launching Vogue there. Like, there's sort of a lot happening there right now, and I think it's the right moment to also expose that talent here. So thinking more about, like, larger scale activations that would involve you know multiple tiers between giving a group of nigerian designers exposure to the right buyers here in addition to customers potentially getting some buy-in from organizations that want to support african design and commerce so that's what i'm super excited about is thinking bigger in terms of the scale of these things and how the actual exposure that's coming to the designers as opposed to 200 people it becomes you know a much bigger thing when you involve press and bigger communities
0: and where's the name from
1: so the name is from the most amazing retail experience I ever had Um, I was on a trip to LA a few years ago and sort of on my own stumbled into a boutique met this woman who was working I bought a few things from her we exchanged phone numbers she texted me like an itinerary of what to do in LA. She's like, you're here on your own for a vacation. Like, you should shop here. You should eat here. You should go to our, these galleries. And we just became friends over text message. So a few months later, I reached out. I said, I have a wedding to go to in a month. Like, Do you have anything for me? I'm looking for a black tie floral dress. So she's like, I know exactly what you need. She sips me a box with three dresses. Doesn't charge me. Says, like, ship me back what you don't like, which is a thing that we did in luxury all the time, yeah. but like never happens yeah. as a customer of contemporary. So, I was sort of wowed, tried on this dress, and fell in love, and made the biggest single item purchase I've ever made in my life <laughs> outside of my home on a dress. like it was just so magical to me, and I didn't think like price didn't matter. I just was in love with her level of service and in follow up with her said, "You know, I'm thinking of starting this business. I would love to understand how you think about your customers." So we were chatting, and she said, "You know, I have these amazing women who." have very serious professional careers. They're always traveling. They're super busy. They have these big lives, and they come to me because for them, fashion is an accent to that. It should be fun. It shouldn't be too serious, and it's really an outlet for them to express who they are in a different way than they are in most of their life. So that idea just like stuck with me, and I absolutely loved the name
0: you tell her you're going to take that yeah, yeah. she didn't charge she's you
1: very, no she's very generous she's an amazing i mean we're very close friends That's great. And she's an amazing advocate so awesome thanks so yeah. much for talking thank you
0: thanks for listening to the loose threads podcast you can read full transcripts <laughs> of the podcast and join the newsletter at loosethreads.com feel free to leave a review on itunes we always appreciate it and thanks to george Drake jr for editing this episode we have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Tom Patterson of Tommy John, Paul Hedrick of Takovas, and Cameron Tall of Moroccan Oil. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.